This is episode four of The Pundits, a podcast on policy, economics, and strategy. My guest today is Professor Graham Allison, and our topic is the potential for U.S.-China war. Professor Allison was Assistant Secretary of Defense in the first Clinton administration, Special Advisor to the Secretary of Defense under President Reagan, and Founding Dean of Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Among his many accomplishments, he has won the Defense Medal for Distinguished Public Service, the highest civilian award given by the Department of Defense. Professor Allison, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule today. I'd love to use our time together to discuss your incredibly insightful book called Destined for War, Can America and China Escape the Thucydides Trap? This book has been praised by Henry Kissinger, Joe Biden, and Walter Isaacson, among many others. And to begin with, I'd love to first discuss how you became interested in the topic of U.S.-China war, and also some of the key ideas behind the book. For example, what the Thucydides Trap is, and what rising and ruling powers are. Well, thank you uh, for the kind comment about the book. Uh, so the book uh, came from my puzzlement about what's happening in relations between China and the U.S. I'm a student of international relations. I uh, am an old cold warrior. I've been fascinated by the problems of war and peace. And as I kept wondering or kept recognizing uh, that China was emerging in our world, and the relationship between the U.S. and China were becoming more difficult, I was searching around for uh, a better way to understand what was happening. And in in that context, I remembered that I had actually read, when I was in college, a brilliant book by Thucydides uh, on the history of the Peloponnesian War 2,500 years ago. Thucydides was the founder and father of history. He invented history as a discipline. And he wrote the first ever history book about the war between Athens and Sparta that basically destroyed the two leading city-states of classical Greece. And he wrote famously that it was the rise of Athens and the fear that this instilled in Sparta that caused the war. So I, therefore, came to appreciate that this concept that Thucydides offered us of the dynamic that occurs when a rising power, in his case it was Athens, uh, threatens to displace a ruling power like Sparta, which had been the ruling power in Greece for a century before Athens rose, or uh, the rise of Germany in the last uh, couple of decades of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, and its rivalry with Great Britain, which had ruled the world for 100 years, and which led to the World War I and the devastation of Europe. And here now in the 21st century, the rise of China, and its threat to displace the U.S. as the ruling power after what Americans know as an American century, that there's a pattern there. So I coined this term Thucydides trap to remind us of Thucydides' big idea, which is that when a rising power threatens to displace a ruling power, 
alarm bells should sound, extreme danger ahead, most often war. And in my book, I review the last 500 years of history. I find 16 cases, one six, in which a rising power threatens to displace a ruling power. 12 of those cases end in war, four in not war. So from that track record, to say that the rivalry between a rising China and a ruling U.S. will inevitably lead, in, lead to war would be wrong on the record. Four of the cases had no war. Mm-hmm. But to say that the odds of war are substantial, and even on the record, more likely than not, would be correct. So I'm wondering whether you can please elaborate on how you define war in the book. And I ask this because the U.S. and China have already begun a trade war that could result in tremendous economic damage. But maybe your definition of war is a more traditional one that includes military action. Yes, my definition of war is real war. Uh, War is the killing of thousands of enemy combatants or civilians by uniformed forces of a nation. Uh, so that's the way it's used in international relations studies. The war, war has become a metaphor for the drug war, and the war on poverty, and the trade war, uh, and now with Huawei, the tech war. So the term is used uh, as a metaphor, but in my book, by war, I mean uh, real, bloody, deadly, uh, killing uh, war. That's a great explanation. Thank you. So you've referenced a quiz that you give students during your national security course at Harvard, and basically students get a list of over 20 indicators of success. So their task is to estimate things like when China might overtake the U.S. as the largest trading nation, the top producer of automobiles, the builder of the fastest supercomputer, and so on. And the surprising lesson of this exercise is that China has already surpassed the U.S. in each of these metrics. Given that China has already exceeded our capabilities in so many ways, would some argue that China is already the ruling power rather than the rising one? And what would you respond to this? Well, that's a good question. So I give a short version of this quiz in my book, Destined for War, and I think it's worth Americans pausing to ask, when could China become number one? since Americans believe, and I believe, that America should be at the top of every pecking order. And we've become accustomed to being number one in every elite. But as I show in the book, and as I mentioned in my TED talk as well, I give this little you know, quiz version, I have now 46 indicators in which if we look and see the facts, China has already become number one. So as you say, China already is the biggest market in the world. It already has the biggest middle class. It already has the most billionaires. It already has uh, so forth and so on. So, but there are many other arenas in which the U.S. remains number one. So the U.S. continues to have the largest economy measured in terms of market exchange rates, even though China's economy is larger than the U.S., measured by purchasing power parity, which I think is a better measure. Uh, The U.S. already certainly has better universities, leading universities relative to China, though China has been catching up. Uh, Last year, actually, the U.S. won first prize in this annual contest for uh, the 
fastest supercomputers, even though China had won the first three places the year before. But unfortunately, even though the U.S. came first last year, China came second, third, fourth, and then three more in the top ten. So this is a competition going on in many, many different dimensions. I think Americans should be waking up to the fact that a country that's got four times as many people and uh, a population of people who are smart and hardworking, if they turn out to be only one quarter as productive as Americans, then they'll have a GDP equal to the U.S. That's just the arithmetic. Right. And so is there some reason why they should be only one quarter as productive? What if they turn out to be one half as productive? Well, then they would have a GDP twice our size. And maybe they could be three quarters as productive. So I think we need to recognize, as I quote in, the, in my book, as Lee Kuan Yew put it, you know, this is going to be the biggest pleasure ever seen in the history of the world. And that's just a fact that's going to be uncomfortable for us, but one that we're going to have to learn to live with. The terms rising and ruling may lead some to believe that there can only be one superpower. But can you please respond to the possibility of bipolarity or a world order in which there are two ruling states that share global leadership? Again, a good question. So, yes, I can imagine a world in which there are two superpowers or two bipolar uh, arrangements. And we saw that in the competition between the U.S. and the Soviet Union in the Cold War. It was called the bipolar era. But in, uh, in addition to having two powers, particularly if one of the powers has been the ruling power for a long time and is accustomed to being the ruling power, and if the rising power is threatening to displace the ruling power as the dominant power, that dynamic is the one that Thucydides wrote about and which I try to eliminate in my book. And in that dynamic, the rising power um, imagining or believing or even sometimes seeing that the ruling power is trying to hold it down and the ruling power imagining or seeing that the rising power is trying to displace it. In this uh, dynamic, you get a magnification or multiplication of misperceptions where both of the, both parties are quite vulnerable to some extraneous action by a third party or even an accident that one or the other of them is obliged to respond to that sets off a spiral between them that can drag them to a war that neither of them wanted. So in the bipolar competition between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, when the Soviet Union was spurting, and this is the uh, 1950s and early 1960s, and Americans thought the Soviet Union was going to overtake the U.S. and surpass us, that was an extremely dangerous period. When the, when the, when the uh, Soviets slowed down and even stagnated a bit, where you had a kind of a, a two, two powers that were pretty stable in their relative position. That was the most stable period of bipolarity. And then ultimately, uh, while the, the geopolitical
political relationship remained uh, uh, stable or basically stalemated, the question of whether the Soviet system could produce uh, uh, what its citizens wanted, both in terms of economic output, product, and also their their personal well-being. Uh, it turned out that a Soviet communist command and control system could not do that, and it ultimately failed, and that was then the cause of the collapse of the Soviet Union. So there's a there's the domestic uh, a footing of the nations that ultimately are then part of the international competition, which Thucydides talks about. In the book, you draw a number of distinctions between the U.S. and China. The China saves 30% of their, in- their income while Americans continue to take on debt. The Chinese are able to build and rebuild new infrastructure within days, whereas similar projects in the U.S. take years. And then there are other examples as well. To what do you attribute China's quick rise in efficiency? population of the U.S., four times as large. So we did the arithmetic. Secondly, China is a great uh, civilization, 4,000 years old, as I like always to remind us, and has for many of its centuries been the leading power in all of the space that it could see. Uh, so it has a conception of itself and of its civilization as a great, a great nation. Uh, and Xi Jinping's agenda today is, as he calls it, to make China great again. Uh, the way that in the Chinese story, China was for all of its history, except for the period in which it was exploited by Westerners with technology, like the last couple of hundred years, which they call the centuries of humiliation. So, uh, next, the Chinese are very talented people, they're very uh, industrious. Uh, wherever you find Chinese, anywhere in the world, you find them being quite successful in Boston, in uh, California, in Africa, in everywhere. Uh, so these are people that are talented and hardworking and that have a culture of, uh, of uh, hard work who have often been ruled by uh, terrible rulers. And most recently, in the recent period, after the collapse of the, uh, of the Qing dynasty and then uh, the communist scourge, which ultimately ended with the, about the uh, cultural revolution of Mao that ended up killing a lot of their own citizens. So they, since then, uh, been, you know, had governments that were more or less sensible and that have essentially decided to embrace the lessons that have been learned by developing countries around the world, not just the U.S., but Europeans and Singapore and Japan and Korea, which is that if you have more or less uh, orderly uh, environment and you have a uh, market, more or less market-based economics in which citizens can keep most of what they produce uh, and are encouraged uh, to entrepreneurially, lo and behold, there's no reason why uh, anybody should be, any society should be poor. And 
that was a story seen in the Asian miracles in Singapore, Taiwan, or Hong Kong, or Japan, or Korea. And so partly what China has been doing is essentially replicating that. So there's a lot of factors there. That, uh, but I think that uh, uh, these are, this is a large, extremely able, uh, competent uh, civilization. They have a government that is determined uh, to make them great again. They have a, they have a national sense uh, among themselves that their time has come. So I think they are, uh, I think Thucydides would say, this is the, the most spectacular rising power he's seen <laughs> forever. And looking at the U.S., I think he would say, this looks like the most comprehensive and determined ruling power he'd seen for a long time. So I think he would be worried about a, a one uh, unstoppable force uh, accelerating towards the other immovable object in the prospect of a great collision. So just to close out, I was wondering whether you can explain why you think it's important for people to understand the Thucydides trap. between the U.S. and China is not, said again, not to be fatalistic or pessimistic. It's rather to recognize that this is actually happening, to recognize how dangerous this is, and therefore to stimulate imagination about what we can do to escape Thucydides Trap. And the book I would like to write is How to Escape Thucydides Trap, and I would have written that book if I knew the answer, but I'm still looking. So. If you have a chance, you may look at my TED talk. I did a version of this request to people, and I'm still hoping that more people are going to be more imaginative and come up with some better ideas than the ones I've come up with so far. Professor Allison, thank you so much again for joining me today. For anyone interested in continuing to explore this topic, I would search for Professor Graham Allison's TED talk called Is War Between China and the U.S. Inevitable?